son. Nothing else in the world smells like that. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hail bomb. For 12 hours, when it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking dink body. Smell! You know, that gasoline smell! The whole hill! Smells like... Victory. Someday this war's gonna end. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent, and with me is your co-host, Teal. How's it going, James? <clears throat> it doesn't work when you say that. Like, I can say James, but you have to say Jim, because it just doesn't <laughs> work. Like, this is a long-standing thing that every- I know, but you recently switched to James, so I figured I'd give it a try, recently, but you're right. like, it's been a long time, like, over six months ago. Um, I know, and I, I, I finally figured I'd catch up no, and start can't. calling you James. But no, 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 no. I'll go back to Jim. I don't think it'll confuse the listener that uh, it's Jim, but I, I'm going to, you know, my host name, it's James Kent. Uh, you refuse to say your last name, you know. Uh, I don't have one. You don't want all the fa- fan mail. You've always called me Jim, and it seems like you're mad at me if you call me James. Because <laughs> that was what would happen, right? When we lived together right. one brief year, if you suddenly said James, I'm like, what the hell did I do? <laughs> It's serious now. He just called me James. He didn't call me Jim. And, and of course, Bill from Queens used to always say, Jimmy. And that was all he ever did was call me Jimmy. So, like, if he calls me James, I'd also be like, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because you started off the podcast as Jim. Yeah. Well, there's a whole, the, the history behind it is when we decided to do the podcast, it was like, you know, again, we could become famous. We don't want people to know who we are. We'll just right, call us Jim right. Teal. And then, uh, you know, I actually had like one person comment says, you know, we don't really know anything about you. It'd be really helpful to understand who you are. Really? Somebody said that? That's, yeah. that, that's creepy. No, it isn't. I mean, you know, people don't know what our background is. I mean, the fact you've, you've kind of hinted at it. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I went to NYU and, and film school and then did nothing afterwards that was related to film. Um, you you were briefly in film school and then you went off and worked for your cousin who was a filmmaker. And then, you know, you went off and got a real education <laughs> down the road. And you know, went to, got your master's in writing and, uh, you know, you're a sometime author. You've been a professor, um, which always sounds like you're 80 to say professor. <laughs> 
I am. I'm 80 years old. <laughs> I mean, you've been, you've been a screenwriter, right? You wrote, wrote yeah. a screenplay that actually got made into a movie. I don't want yeah. to talk about that one. It's not we good. don't want to talk about it, but. You know, it's not a good movie. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> That's why we don't talk about it. <laughs> you know, it, it could have been good, right? <laughs> No, not really. <laughs> no, you don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you never. I never thought it w- it could have been good. You didn't direct it, so. <sighs> yep. <laughs> hey man, <laughs> but you got paid something, right? Oh, I definitely got paid. Yeah, no, I mean it was a it was a paying job, right? So there you go. Not, not going to turn down a paying job. And didn't you actually like? I, didn't you actually like get paid money for a script that never got produced? Many. <laughs> there you go see that's what people don't realize out in hollywood is that there are people out there that have made themselves a tidy little career of having a ton of non-published scripts and script doctoring yes exactly yep and i actually know i know a guy and he actually did a lot of that and then him and his writing partner actually uh scored big they got like a big movie but yeah and well it was like through 20 different <laughs> screenwriting teams right (laughs) but they were the last official team on the job and they actually were on set for the whole thing so they got credit but i think it was actually um secretly dubious because the movie was a huge notorious bomb and it probably hurt their career to have their names on it i'm not going to mention the person in the name uh (laughs) but i think that it was a plot from all the other screenwriters that they were like no no these two let them <laughs> hit it, it on those two yeah because it really wasn't fair that they got hit because i think they were brought on mostly for the jokes but if the jokes didn't land uh you know and the jokes did not land yeah but uh you know we know lots of stories of people out there in hollywood who you know, may not know their names but they've been on a lot of stuff yep um anyways so that's about us that's that's all the, that's everything you need to know about us yeah and I, I i took a very far away turn from uh movies and i eventually was in you know marketing and advertising and uh you know then uh now i'm here <laughs> now you're here on the show yeah and then i do other i do some other stuff uh that's uh marketing related let's just say yeah <laughs> Oh, good times. Hey, um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't be laughing. It's kind of a sad day. Um, so, you know. It's a sad day? Well, I mean, when I, right after we taped our last episode, uh, the news came out, and I guess it wasn't really unexpected because this is some of the things that I've been worried about with the pandemic, uh, that movie theaters, they are really one venue that oh, large yeah. part cannot reopen. They've taken such a hit and they can't, they still can't reopen at full capacity in a lot of places. Well, right. Unless you're in like wacky wild west territory of like right. Texas or like Florida where they don't give a flying flip. Um, and it's like, you know, it's like, hey, well, whatever. So there's like a twofold problem. You've got some states, there's hardly any theaters open at all. And right. then even if you, have theaters open they can only open to a a fraction of the capacity which makes it very financially you know not viable for a lot of places yeah and then on top of that because of all those restrictions the studios did not really want to release all of their a-list material so there's very few uh options to go see at theater um so i mean it's just like you know it's a five-fold problem and there are certain theaters that have not opened since the pandemic and you know i'm always talking about like massachusetts that I'm familiar with because of my family still there, a lot of the big theater chains are opened at the limited capacity. Okay. But the smaller independents, 
some of the ones that show actual, you know, can show actual movies on film, they have not opened. So we're talking about the Brattle in Cambridge. We're talking about the Somerville Theater, one of the ones that's my all-time favorite uh, theater. They have not reopened at all, though they've done some virtual programming. And, you know, my concern is that we're probably only a few weeks away from full reopenings. Yeah. And then that means these theaters probably could. But this is when we're going to find out, will these theaters ever reopen? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is going to be a bit of a boom initially. You actually, Well, you actually think there'll be a boom in what? In what way? You mean that people will go to the theaters? Yes. Yeah, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about whether or not, um, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, okay, somehow magically with the little fluke and powder, <laughs> these theaters can just shut down for a year and there's no financial ramifications. They, I mean, and that's what just happened with Pacific theaters is they can't. So that's the really, that's like, to me, what I was expecting was going to happen. You have these theater yeah. chains, longstanding ones, that they are not going to reemerge when theaters come out of this uh lockdown yeah they could not survive the lockdown so pacific theaters is a chain that you would be familiar with and yeah. i would be familiar with because we both spent time in los angeles you more so than i you spent many years yeah. there and the thing that was most known in my book about the pacific chain because there weren't a lot of places in california that i really you know i wasn't near was but they're all over the state they're all over the state, right. Uh, but their big sort of crown jewel was the Cinerama Dome. Yes. And so, uh, again, at some point that many years ago was sold and it was going to get turned into like some kind of like shopping complex yeah. and stuff. And that the Cinerama Dome was history, except that someone was going to keep the dome because of its a landmark status. Uh, but it wasn't going to be a theater anymore. It ended yeah. up getting bought by this tiny little niche chain Arclight that I think Pacific bought Arclight. I don't know the details there, but I think you're right. Pacific bought Arclight. So they got it back into the fold and Arclight, I think they built many cinemas around the cinema dome and then they did. It's got like 15 screens now. And now were you ever, did you ever go to that complex when it was the 15 screens? Not when it was the 15 screens. I went Early when it was just ArcLight on one screen. Okay. So then ArcLight originally took over the dome. And then oh, they no. Actually, let's see. They built a few others. No, I did see something in one or two of the other ones. Yeah. So I, that was right around when I was leaving LA that they were uh, really updating that complex. So now, you know, with the closing and then the closing of ArcLight and closing of the Cinerama Dome, you know, a lot of people... They, you know, I think people are very upset in that this is what they expected, like the worst case scenario yeah. for movies. And why is it so important? I mean, the Cinerama Dome, well, it represents something that really doesn't exist more than like maybe the man's Chinese theater in Hollywood yeah. is this last bastion to what cinema used to be. And and the thing is, the Cinerama Dome isn't even that old. It was 1963, yeah, and there's all these old theaters in Los Angeles that are, you know, from the 20s and 30s. Right, but it was designed to be this new form of, yes. of what cinemas could be because, you know, we go back to what Cinerama, Cinerama was specialty and they built these theaters and it was three panel. And when yeah. they built the Cinerama Dome, it was supposed to represent sort of the next evolution of Cinerama with mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful curved deep screen. And they had installed the areas 
for the three projectors. Yes. However, while it was in production, you know, building the Cinerama dome, right? The they realized that, and this is Cinerama, the company. They right, realized right. that the three strip paneling, so it really was not the future. <laughs> right, it wasn't it's sustainable. So, it's so cumbersome and so bizarre and so hard to deal with. Yeah, and they'd already been experimenting it with it in How the West with One, where they shot a yes. few sequences, uh, not on three panel. Uh, but anyways, they abandoned it. They left all the stations in the Cinerama Dome so that I guess if they decide to put the projectors in, and someday at some point they did install it. Uh, like I mean, I'm talking about like ten years ago or something, so right. they could show a real official Cinerama in there. But it was never designed – it never finished as a three-strip Cinerama Dome. And the first film that showed there uh, to debut the new process of Cinerama was It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. Oh, okay. Yes. And so then, you know, big premiere uh, roadshow widescreen event films would show at the Cinerama Dome. It it always felt special seeing – stuff there even when you know i first started going there in the early 90s and it was a little run down yeah so uh so my history dates a little earlier than yours so i went to school at usc for one year in 1988 to 1989 you know the fall of 88 to 89 and when i got there me and a, and a friend of mine who was actually a friend of mine from high school we both went to usc for our freshman year and then we both went to nyu and one of the things is sort of a mecca because when you grow up and you see Hollywood, one of the iconic things that you see of Hollywood, you see pictures of the of the Hollywood sign, and you it's see, high tourism. Yeah, and you see pictures of the Man's Chinese Theater, and yeah. you see pictures of the Capitol Building, the Capitol Records Building, and the Cinerama Dome. Yeah. So pretty quickly, with only like been on campus for a few weeks, my friend and some people he knew from his dorm floor, they were going, and I got to go on a Saturday afternoon to go to the Cinerama Dome because everybody wanted to see what it was like. Yeah. And see Roger Rabbit was playing there in 70 millimeter. Oh, fun. So that was, and I had seen Roger Rabbit a couple times over the summer. And the first time I actually had seen it in 70 millimeter at the Charles Theater that's no longer there in Boston. but That's uh, where I saw it. Yeah, it was probably one of your visits that you took with your friends. One of my road trips to Boston. So, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the magic of seeing Roger Rabbit 70 millimeter wasn't quite there. And uh, but it was just exciting to go into the dome and you felt like yeah. you were part of history. And then about a mother month or so later, Cinerama was celebrating. And this is hard to believe this is how old I am now. It was celebrating its 25th anniversary. Because <laughs> it was 88 and it opened up right. in the in the fall of 63. Yep. Uh, so they were celebrating with a huge slate of widescreen classics. Oh, cool. And of course, if I had a car to go off of the USC lot and go downtown right. to uh, Hollywood, I would have probably gone to see more of them. But I wasn't able to do that and have a car. I had to go- and there's terrible public transportation between those two areas. Oh, God, yeah. You really, that would be a nightmare. And, uh, and it's, you know, you actually have to pay to park in the dome parking lot was not cheap, right. even in 1988. And Anyways, my roommate at the time, uh, this guy, Darren, he would frequently go home to his family's house in Calabasas. He was a valley boy on the weekends, but sometimes on Fridays, he would, we would do stuff. He'd maybe even take me to the valley, hang out, go to a movie with his, with his friends or just him. And then 
he would drop me back off at USC <laughs> into the gates and I would, then he would leave for the weekend and I'd be stuck there. Uh, but this one Friday night, he and I, we drove as fast as we could to get there in time uh, before it sold out. We thought, oh my God, it's going to sell out even though that the dome had like 800 seats or something, maybe even more. And we got to go to one of their anniversary screenings. It was a gorgeous, and if you think about this, this was so crazy. It was only nine years old at the time because uh -huh. uh, this movie feels like it's always been like 40 or 50 years old, but it was a pristine 70 millimeter, six track audio presentation, Midnight of Apocalypse Now. Oh, cool. Original cut. Original cut. There yeah. was no, he hadn't done any redux at the time. And it was a complete sellout, and we were like dead center, uh, the perfect like sweet spot that you're supposed to have yep. at the dome. And out of all the movies I have ever seen in my entire life, this was the ultimate sound experience I've ever had. Yeah, well, that movie kind of yeah. I mean, Walter Murch's revolutionary he revolutionized sound on that movie. Yeah. And so to have that six track experience mm -hmm. and it was the roadshow print with a different, slightly different ending. And it was just unbelievable. Like, you know, you think you've seen that movie until you've seen it first on the big screen, but yeah. then, uh, and so to me, there was no other time I was ever going to go to the dome where the cinematic experience was quite the same. I did. And that's why I want to talk to you about is that, uh, you know, we went a few times together. Yes. To, and of course, we, we've already mentioned before that we went and saw the Tina Turner movie. That is one of my favorite Cinerama Dome memories. And it was just, like I said, it was like a concert happening yeah. at the, the screening. And it was, it, it took me by surprise. And I'll, of course, always associate the Cinerama Dome with seeing that. The first movie I saw at the Cinerama Dome was 2001. Yeah, I was there with you. Yes. Yeah, and and that guy Hal, which was not the computer, but no, <laughs> no, that was the second time I saw it at the Cinerama Dome. Oh, really? No, that was the first time I yeah, saw yeah, it a yeah. second. Yeah, no, but, but I the saw copy it. we saw was not that great. It was not that great. It yeah. was a little faded. Yeah. So that was like not the best. That was not the best yeah. experience I ever had seeing 2001. However, it was cool to see 2001 in the Cinerama Dome. It was. Yeah. And I did see it again there with a slight, with a better print. Ah. A few years later, I think in 95. It was cool though to see 2001, which was a, a, it was a product of Cinerama. Yes. And get to see it with the deep curved screen. Yes. And so there were a few scenes that were immersive in a way that might not have been with the flat screen. Prior to that, I had not seen 2001 widescreen. I only seen it pan and scanned. So that's pretty crazy. Because yeah. the first time you ever get to see it projected um, and not just on TV is a pretty much a revolutionary experience. It is. Even if, even if one of the reels is a little faded, it's still a, a pretty overwhelming experience. And... Like the sound of the breathing is so different when you're in, you know, a theater like that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's true. I've seen 2001 projected now uh, several times. Yeah, me too. I, I've seen it five times in the theater and I've been fortunate enough that four of those five times were in 70 millimeter. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty fantastic. Yeah. And the most recent was when they uh, had that restored uh cut that like christopher nolan 
was involved in. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. It was fine. Um, the best, the best experience I ever had with it, um, and then maybe it's a, it really is almost like a Bill Bill Muir from uh, Queens story. Yeah, is when I was a senior at NYU, I was I went to the Museum of the Moving Image down in Queens. They were doing a seventy millimeter widescreen festival. They had just opened as a museum. Oh, so, okay. And they had a seventy millimeter projector and stuff. And I went the week before to see the right stuff in 70 millimeter. Oh, okay. And that was insane because uh, it was one of my favorite films and getting yeah, to see yeah, it in yeah. 70 millimeter was great. And of course, that also was only about nine years old at the time. And so the, right, pr- right. the print was amazing. <laughs> and Bill didn't get to go to that and he was really jealous. So I'm like, well, you're not going to miss this week. They're going to show 2001. And I was excited to see that finally in 70 millimeter. So we get there on a Saturday afternoon and it wasn't very, very busy. And the guy comes out and he says- we got a rare treat for you. He said, this 70 millimeter print was just struck for the laser disc they were doing. Oh, wow. He says, it's been only, aside from what it was used for, for the laser disc, for the, right. you know, for the, for the transfer process, it's never been, this is the first time it's going to been projected. Wow. And never, I mean, b- Bill and I were just, we were looking at each other shaking because <laughs> it was like getting transported back in time yeah, and seeing this brand new, almost like wet because it was so new print. Wow. And so that, that for me was the, you know, it was the premier event of seeing 2001. Mm-hmm. But when I really look back at my memories, I didn't get to see very many movies at the Dome. I think about six or seven. And this is something that's kind of interesting about the Dome. You would think, oh, every single like super premier best no. movie would play at the Dome. But that's not the case. A lot of times it was playing, you know, big movies, but not the biggest movie. Right. Absolutely. And that was why I lived walking distance to the Dome at one point. You did. And that was after me. So I figured you must have a pile more uh, experience. The thing is, I don't actually. And it's because they weren't often playing the big movie. Yeah, isn't and then so it's that plus this is always one of those things where you don't know how good you have it until it's not there anymore. And I mentioned earlier the the dome was a little bit run down. Like yeah. it had it had the original seats in the 90s. And these are things where it's just it's a single theater, it's very expensive to maintain and uh, I remember like the carpeting being kind of worn. You know, the whole place was a little bit run down and I, and then I remember when they like changed it into the arc light, basically. And it was refurbished and better. Yeah. Yeah. They totally refurbished it. They put in new everything. And, and so in the nineties, yeah, I, I went a few times, but my big memories are 2001, the, uh, Tina Turner movie. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? And then that was the first place I saw until the end of the world. Really? Yeah. The five-hour cut. I saw the five-hour cut of Until the End of the World at the Cinerama Dome. Oh, yeah. and that was one where, uh, was it Vim Vendors? Vim Vendors was there talking had, about oh it. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Now, that he must have been excited to be able to show the movie in a place like that. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, it, what I like about that movie is just the experience of watching it. Yeah, but what a great place to see it. Well, and that's the thing. In that place with, you know, and there's there's two intermissions when you see it in the theater. Mm. 
it, so it ends up being like six hours total, right, 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 with with the intermissions and everything. And so you're with all these other people going through this, and you get to see them during the break, and it's like this kind of shared aesthetic experience uh, over like basically m- most of the day. And it, it just really cool to be like hanging out in the lobby and here and like there's Vim vendors talking to people. I, I did not uh, go up and talk to him. I know it can be intimidating when you see somebody like that and you're like, oh, my God, I'd like to say something. but <laughs> I'd like to say something, but he does. His English isn't that great. And, right. But yeah, that so that was one of my and, and I think I saw 2001 there like three times. So I wouldn't I, I didn't often go just for the regular movies playing there. I often went for, for the special screenings and stuff. Yeah, I mean, a couple of the movies that I saw, well, like, you know, we saw the Tina Turner there, uh, a couple other movies that I saw there, which, you know, they weren't like, it wasn't standout for the Dome, it just they happened to be playing at the Dome. Yeah. And on my birthday, when I first moved back to LA after getting on NYU, so this is when I turned uh, 22. Yeah. Yeah. The same guy that I went and saw Apocalypse Now with, this guy Darren, I was still friends with him at the time from uh, from my days at USC. He and I and a couple of his friends, we all went out for my birthday and we went down to Hollywood and we went to the Hamburger Hamlet down there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you and I had some adventures Oh, we, we definitely spent some time at the Hamburger Hamlet. So we had some beers, you know, and, and the hamburgers. And then we went to the Dome and saw it was opening night of A League of Their Own. I know it really wasn't it. So the theater had nothing to do. I mean, it was a big theater and it was, right. it was packed with stuff, but uh, I just remember seeing it there. And then also when I was at USC, because it was really one of the only places playing it at the time when it first came out, my roommate, Darren and I went down there and saw Mississippi burning. Right. And it was like one night and I think it was a Sunday night, the opening weekend. And we, it wasn't that busy there. We go. And of course you had to pay parking and my yeah, yeah, yeah. roommate hated that and so he would try to like pull all these tricks saying that like he his like dad was like the president of like say pacific theaters or something <laughs> what? and he would say so could we get it they told us we could get in and i swear to god <laughs> like it worked we didn't have to pay for parking um, what he, he did this for universal studios too they they had their movie theater there yeah and you'd get validated parking at the parking lot but like he told them a lot of times that I, I forget who was the president at the time of Universal, which is like Tom uh, something. And right. he he would say that his father was that guy, and <laughs> he said that we could get free parking. And the the attendant usually was like, oh, I don't want to you know disagree with that. <laughs> he would let us in for free, um, you know, because a four bucks does um you know college know, students is a it, lot. <laughs> that's that's pretty hilarious to get away with that though. He like, did. It was he just never cared. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious just watching this kid. He was really a funny character because he was six foot seven. Oh, wow. And I would look tiny next to him yeah. at all the times. And he would ride. He drove in this GTI, 1980, probably seven uh, right. GTI. So it was a very tiny car. He's a big, tall guy. And he had uh, a sunroof and he had to have the sunroof up because it gives a little extra <laughs> space for his head. <laughs> yeah. And he was, he was a maniac driving too. He was like, you know, if we, if we needed to get someplace and you had to try to get through LA traffic, he would go from the, you know, the far left lane to the right lane, zooming in and out. And I really was pretty sure I was going to get killed. Yeah. I am not that kind of LA driver. You are not, but he was, and it was pretty scary. 
That is terrifying. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I saw like Mississippi burning. It wasn't. Well, so that's the thing. Like when Apocalypse Now Redux came out. Yeah. It didn't play at the Dome. Oh, it didn't? No. And so like, uh, you know, I wasn't going to go there to see a movie like, say, Mississippi Burning, but. It was the only place playing it at the time. That's why it was like. And then it was like, oh, and it's the Dome. Right. And and so it, it just wasn't as, I mean, I liked seeing movies there, but it wasn't as much of a destination. Like I heard, I heard someone talk about in 1977, the, when it was only in a few exclusive engagements, like the opening couple mm-hmm. of weeks that they remember seeing close encounters of the third kind, mm. 70 millimeter there. And then it was just like, you know, one of a kind experience, that first opening where you hear the, yeah. big, the note from John Williams and, uh, it goes, yep. <laughs> uh, that that was quite an experience. Um, and I wish I had experiences like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, my like I said, my closest is probably until the end of the world is probably my best Cinerama Dome experience. That's a pretty cool one. Well, for me, it's Apocalypse Now, and then that one's a good one too. And uh, you know, it's just it, it. I'm glad that we had an experience. That's why I think we're talking about it is because I realize that there's a lot of people that would listen to this podcast that probably never got to go to the dome. So I think it's going to stick around. Um, you know what? I'm not going to make any guarantees. I, I'm certainly the, the the structure will. Yeah. But will it ever have movie theater inside? I don't know. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that once things reemerge and people can assess and we feel like, okay, you know, movies can continue. Um, it would be a shame because I feel like if anything, that whether it become a museum or something, that's a place where really cool movies should be projected and shown. Yes. Well, and I think that you know, there's not a lot, there's a few uh, sort of movie premiere theaters in LA. Yeah. And the Cinerama Dome is one of them. I'd still like to go when it opens the Motion Picture Academy's um, museum. Yes. Well, to me, I don't know whether they must, there must be some kind of movie theater that they're building with that, but it would be great since it's going to be up the street that the Cinerama Dome should be an extension of that. And, yeah. And great movies should play there all the time. Yeah. I mean, the last time I was at the Dome, believe it or not, was with you. Okay. So that was a while ago. Yeah. And so a few weeks after what love's got to do with it, you and I, and that same non-computer version of Hal, <laughs> he he insisted. we So we were going to go, and this is one of the last movies that we saw you and I before you moved away from California. You just sort of yeah. like, you kind of was like, you were like there for like a, a, a non-educational semester. Yes. <laughs> um, and we went to see the opening day of Last Action Hero, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. That's right. And the reason we went to see it at the Dome, you and I were were fond of seeking out movies in 70 millimeter. Yes. We had gone to see Cliffhanger a few weeks before in uh-huh. 70 millimeter uh, in the Hollywood Galaxy Theater. Yeah, which I don't know what happened to that place. <sighs> I don't know. We would have preferred to see last action hero in 70 millimeter and yeah. previously someplace like the dome would have however and this was sort of uh kind of speaking the end for 70 millimeter <laughs> as, a, as a as a thing is that they were testing out their brand new digital yes it was like a sony digital eight track yeah and hal wanted to hear the eight track yeah and so you didn't get so that's great right so you'd say that would be the equivalent of the six track in 70 millimeter but you don't get the extra sharp picture right and so you know and the movie itself was pretty bad 
it's not a very good movie, but it's somehow become like a cult class. Some people, I mean, I guess if you were a kid at the time, you might have liked it, and so it becomes a fan favorite of yours, right? I think, yeah. I think if I had been like uh, nine or ten at the time, I probably would have loved it. Like, for instance, let's 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 take us back and pretend we were the same twenty-two-year-olds that we were when we were seeing Last Action Hero, and instead we were seeing the Goonies. <laughs> And we'd right. be like, what the frick is this crap? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, the 10-year-old version of us <laughs> would have loved it. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's the case. So anyways, that is the uh, start of our program was to talk about the Cinerama Dome. And we do hope that it can continue so that people get a chance to go out and see it because it really was uh, a cool thing to do. Yeah. And uh, it, again, it just reminds me that some of the coolest venues for seeing movies are going. This whole pandemic thing, I think, is a seismic shift in the movie business, and it's just we'll see what it returns to. It's going to look a little different, I think. Well, I mean, it was like us. I mean, I don't even I don't even know if my home hometown theater is going to be open, and if it doesn't reopen, that makes it really difficult for me to go out and see movies because the closest theater then is literally an hour away. Yeah, and so. One of the things that we did during the pandemic is we upgraded our TV. I now have a 75-inch TV. Right. It's pretty big for my wall. And, you know, my wife's mom, uh, we had our first visitor since the pandemic. Yeah. And she got to visit. She's vaccinated. We're vaccinated. So, you know, she could visit. And the TV made such an impression on her. Oh. Within a couple of days, it went from, oh, don't want my husband to see this because he'll want one, to her texting him saying, you got to size up the wall because because <laughs> she realized like, whoa, I can see details and it's like yeah. a lot easier for me. And she's like, I'm a little old. This is like great. And next thing you know, they, they want to get a TV that size. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and so that does change. Like, you know, how many people like I, it's now big enough and enjoyable enough that a lot of films I can say, well, you know. <laughs> you know. Oh, I definitely feel that way with my big screen. Like, yeah. I don't, there's not really uh, incentive to go to the theater right now. And my theater, my local theater is open. Oh, it did. Look at you. You could be going to the movies. Well, uh, it's. Oh, some, you're not, you're only partially vaccinated, right? I'm only partially vaccinated and they're still not at full capacity. And But they are. Even though when you go, you're the only person there. So <laughs> I would probably be the only person there, but here's what they're playing right now. Oh, I know. There's junk, right? <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong. Crap. Rhea and the Last Dragon. Supposed to be pretty decent. Eh. Tom and Jerry. No. The Unholy. I don't I even know what do that is. I want to see that. It's uh, Sam Raimi produced it. Tar movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Nobody, which I hear is is supposed to be pretty good. Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned Nobody, uh, <laughs> that was a film that I was hoping that you would watch. I mean, you know, on demand. It's available on demand, early release, but apparently that you didn't. Well, I did, and we won't talk about it because you didn't see it, uh, but it's amazing. It's uh, the writer of John Wick movies, and to me, it feels like it could slot right there in like the John Wick universe, maybe the suburban oh, John Wick universe, and it's 90 minutes, and that's what I like. It's a very tight, uh, you know, when you make a film that you have to kind of suspend belief a little bit. Right. The quicker you make that movie, like the tighter it is, <laughs> yeah. the less time you have to think about anything that might just not fit in. I think it's brilliant. I've really been appreciating 90-minute movies lately. Oh, I love it. And, of course, you see all those genre movies, right, on Netflix. Man, 90 minutes sometimes. It's yeah. just perfect. No, it's just perfect. And the amount of story that you can fit in there without all the loose edges, like, it, it just has to be boiled down into that 90 minutes. 
and it makes for some really tight movies. Well, you know, what's interesting is always like, wow, but the, you know, the longer it is, you get to explore the characters more. But yet in these 90 minute movies or sometimes less, the characters are better defined than they are in these yes. two and a half hour things. Yes. So it's yeah. like, that's, you know, it's really about what do you do with the time you have? So, you know, and Bob Odenkirk, right? Interesting choice. Not, a, yeah. n- not what you'd think of as an action star. And he's gotten himself in some pretty decent shape. I mean, he looks, he looks pretty cool. And, uh, it's, uh-huh. It's great that the whole the whole thing I I loved it and I mean I was like for a for action genre movie uh, on that level I'm giving it four stars. Okay. As a regular movie I'm giving it like three and a half stars. It would fit right, right in with my <laughs> my wiki and love and I'm like I want more of this character and this movie. I want another movie and so did my wife and so did my oldest. Are they making another movie? I think it, well, you know, they probably thought this was going to be like the start of a John Wick thing in the theaters that might, the first one might do pretty right. well and then catch on in cable. But so hopefully people are going to watch this. Uh, I got a feeling, uh, I already know some people who watched it and were already posting about it like, whoa, this movie's great. And uh, it's absolutely, I, I've been noticing people talking about it too. It's got stuff you're going to like. It's got stuff that I think you will appreciate. Okay. So I'm I won't say anything because I know you don't like to know. You just also don't like to see the movie so that you get like longer. <laughs> I have to go without not telling you. That's, so. the, uh, that's the ultimate of not knowing what's going to happen, right? So now last week's program, right? Last week's program, we had an epic, we talked forever. <laughs> and, yes. and it was so much that at first I was like, well, I'm going to have to cut it into two parts. And then I said, you know what? We're covering a, a segment that I was talking about a couple of movies that you didn't even see. I hadn't seen at the time, yeah. I spent most of that time trying to convince you to see them. (laughs) And I was then picking apart like what I didn't like about one movie. And I realized, I'm like, you know, if he just sees the movies, then I could just cut this segment out. Right. So good. That's what we did. Yeah. So we started talking, we did a little sort of Oscar update. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, predictions and stuff. And now that the Oscars are coming, and by the time that you would hear this episode, the, the Oscars may be only like a day or so away because uh, they're next weekend. Oh, they are? Okay. Yeah, yeah, the 25th. So, you know, get ready and, and enjoy. Oh, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm, uh, I've lost enthusiasm. I really could give a frick. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have no enthusiasm for this whatsoever. And, you know, and even the, the stuff that people are going on and on and on about the internet, and there's always, I always try to, you know, get involved in some argument. I, I haven't even had the desire to get into too many of those. Wait, what day is the Oscars? This coming Sunday. This coming Sunday. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Finally, at the end of April, <laughs> they're going to finally have this over with. Yeah. Let's remember all those movies from last year that nobody saw. Or the movies from last year that actually came out this year. Yeah. And I, so I just don't have a lot of enthusiasm, but I have seen all of the nominees for Best Director and Best Picture. And that was one of what we were talking about was where the father was one of those that when the nominations came out, it got nominated for all these move, these awards. And we were like, whoa, well, what's the deal, right? What's it nominated for? Well, it's nominated for Best Picture and it's nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actress and Best uh, Set Design and Best Adapted Screenplay and... Uh, you know, best editing. and uh, Oh, I, I didn't realize it had that many Yeah, remember we kept on getting it. We were like, whoa, the father for another award. Whoa, what's yeah. this? And I think that what caught us was like, what best set direction, the father. Like, what could that possibly what, How could that happen? Out? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I've read like a lot of people who apparently never see any movies, right? They were like praising this as like some revolutionary movie. And oh my goodness, Anthony Hopkins, he should win. And it's like, you know, calm down. 
<laughs> I've seen it, and it's you know he's good. But as I had said in last week's episode that got cut out, is that he was playing the curmudgeon Anthony Hopkins, which I see him play a lot, like in the Pope, the two popes. I felt like there was more to this performance, though, than you had prepared me for with the curmudgeonly Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, I, I said, uh, well, I thought you had a good point, whereas you just, you know, he was like, he played the curmudgeonly uh, Anthony Hopkins in Thor, and I'm and I'm not quite sure, but maybe <laughs> maybe this character and the father was Thor's dad, Odin, and, he had been, and he's somewhat not sure where he is anymore. So, what I thought was interesting about his performance is that he moves back and forth uh, uh, on his face and in his eyes between confusion and total clarity. Yeah, he's lucid and then he's not lucid. Yeah, and he does that in a really subtle way in his performance. Uh, it's good. I mean, mind you, he's good. He should de definitely have been nominated for an Oscar. And then, you know, he goes places with this that are really kind of raw and difficult. Uh so, I, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty great performance. Definitely worthy of nomination. I don't know about winning, uh, but I would not be upset if he won. One of my problems with the film, I mean, it's based on a play, right? So, one of my problems was that is his character, I mean, he's obviously not very likable, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't really get any kind of backstory on the guy. Like, I don't feel like I really get to know him beyond what's going on. And I know that's because of the the direction of the movie, right? But I yeah. also feel like I, that's where, again, we've had several movies this year based on plays, and I feel like that the, that he's trapped within a play. I don't know if you read Anthony Lane's review of The Father. No, I did not. Okay, so he said something interesting, which was that he saw The Father on stage. Okay. Like two years ago, and that he promptly forgot about it the next day. And that that isn't the case with the movie and that it, in fact, works so much better as a movie than it ever did as a play, hmm. which I thought was interesting. And I think there's a reason for that is that visually things can be done to sort of repeat images or th there's the door at the end of the hallway, which comes up a lot yeah. as an as an image, the moving stuff around the going from one room to the next. Uh, the way it inhabits the space, I think, would be very hard to do on stage. You know, the way that like things change in the apartment. There's a lot more subtlety to that that you can do in the movie. That's what I liked and didn't like about the movie is, mm -hmm. well, the, the, the set direction in the movie is pretty amazing. Yes, it is. But on that note, and this is where, again, I get it, I understand it, but it's still a problem for me is that it is on a soundstage. That didn't bother me at all. It bothered me, but I want to tell you why is that I get it. You want control of the environment in order to be able to make all these set changes and stuff. And yet it's supposed to be in a person's apartment, right? And you have a window and you see the outside and the well, light. Sure, that's what you think. But no, but that's okay. But see, I don't want to spoil the movie, but even at the end, right? The, that would be one thing if the end was like in a real setting. But that was still also artificial, and that really bothered me. And it also bothered me that as a viewer, that the lighting on Anthony Hopkins' hair was so harsh <laughs> that it looked blue half the time, and it really took me out. And also the fact that it felt like they had these giant ceilings because it was, again, on a set. And I would have loved to have seen a shot that showed a ceiling, even if it was fake, to give me the feeling I was in a real space. 
And I never felt like, I felt it very artificial. And I, like I said, I understand, but when you have a window and the window looks like they've got some digital projection out there and a fake light, it doesn't look real to me. It just takes me out of the movie. Okay. So I had the opposite response. Okay. Is that I liked the artificiality of it hmm. because uh, it felt like an aesthetic choice to me that this wasn't taking place in the real world. This is taking place in his mind to some extent. Yeah, but here's the problem with that is that there are scenes that are not with his point of view that they actually show his 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 daughter that's a whole different matter that's a whole different flaw with the movie yeah but see that's what i'm saying is that the guy <laughs> he's he's mixed up like I, he he's he's obviously a guy who directs plays and so for him the environment of like wow with all these film gadgets and techniques right. i can now on on a set here i can manipulate differently however he didn't have the directorial ability to say but what if we were able to find like an empty loft space and build the sets that we could change and yet it would be natural lighting etc and well they can't do natural lighting because you have to well i know you don't have control he wanted control you've to got to have change. control over it because it's the same you have to be able to change time of day kind of at you will you notice he wasn't nominated for best director and i'm saying if you got the director who can figure out how to do that that's what makes a good director <laughs> and a great director and then i see but see that's what i had said and I, again i uh, apologize for repeating myself to you teal because that's fine is that then I watch on the heels of that, I watch a movie that shows me, oh, I, I I was feeling like, well, okay, I was trying to like, you know, I was trying to, I felt bad for the director. I'm like, well, okay, you know, because it's hard. But then I watch another film where they use natural light and it's like, oh, it wasn't a problem for, uh, you know, Thomas Vinterberg with <laughs> another round. I still think in The Father, it's an aesthetic choice. And I think that's a good argument that you can make. It didn't work for me. But actually, I like that we're disagreeing a bit. Yeah. No, I think I understand that it didn't work for you, but it worked for me. The artificiality of it, I thought was a good thing. It worked for a point, but I got to tell you that it didn't take me too long to figure out where it was all going to go. And it went exactly where I thought it was going to go. <laughs> where else could it go? I know. I mean, it's it's sort of a train headed in one direction. There's no... Uh, but I felt it was like a one-note movie. Here's... So, this is, this is funny. About... 10 or so years ago, maybe more, eh, 12 years, uh, I was in graduate school and I was teaching undergraduates. Okay. And I had a rule in my fiction class. I had a couple of rules. Oh, okay. One was you can't write about uh, getting drunk at college parties. <laughs> yeah. And another one was you can't write about Alzheimer's in a disjointed narrative trying to do an imitative form of dementia. Oh, it sounds like this movie just broke that rule. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm watching this movie and I'm going, oh man, this is just a cliche. Like this is that cliche I was objecting to 10 years ago. Um, but, it's, but it's pretty well done. But that's the thing is that it did it so well that it didn't really matter. But you're right. It is kind of a one trick pony, right? So once you figure out what's going on, it does kind of spin its wheels for a little bit, right? There's not, it can get more and more dis, disjointed and confused as it goes on, but that's about it. So it doesn't, it can't really build on itself in any meaningful way. Well, I thought it was cool 
when he was having certain conversations that seemed belligerent to him, yeah. it, it was almost you would try not, you you would get to understand why people with dementia or Alzheimer's get agitated. Yeah. Because yeah. their perception of whatever a conversation is is much darker necessarily than what it might be. And so then, you know, another, I think it might be a drawback to this movie is that you spend a lot of time trying to figure things out. Uh, And there's a few details in particular, uh, like the daughter moving to Paris. Yeah. That you go back and forth on throughout the film. I mean, this ties into what you were saying with the scenes that he's not in. Right. And so there's this point of view shift, which I think is a little bit of a flaw when you see uh, other characters on their own without him. Yeah, you can't have it two ways. You can't have it two ways. And so once you break out of his point of view, you're telling the audience this this part is real. Right. And yet, but yet by the time the ending, it's 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 not that simple, right? It's not that simple. And so I feel like that that leaving his point of view is a flaw in the film. And it does because it immediately as the audience, you go, oh, well, that's real. So that means this isn't real. So that means. Yeah, because you're trying to, trying to piece together a puzzle. And you start trying to piece together a puzzle. And, you know, that puts you in this state of mind of confusion and dementia and trying to put it together, which I guess is what he's doing, too. So it's interesting. It's like it is this imitative form in a way. Uh, of trying to put the audience in his state of mind. But m- for the most part, it's not super confusing because no. it's lucid in the moment. Yep. And there's very few scenes where he's just so confused. And uh, the thing is, I never really felt totally confused, but I did feel like I was trying to figure it out. And the trying to figure it out made it a little bit more of a puzzle uh, at times than something I could respond to emotionally. Well, once I started to figure out what, you know, I mean, again, nobody knows when you're first getting into this, what's going to be you know, right. revealed. But after a while, it became fun to watch the very subtle at times changes in the art direction. It absolutely does. Yes. So to me, it'll be interesting to see what wins art direction, because I, I really do think that, that without the great art direction in this movie, we might not have as a, sec- a successful a film as it became. I, I totally well and that was sort of Anthony Lane's point, right? Is that as a film when you have all these other elements that you can play with, you're not depending just on because I, I thought, you know, the dialogue was fine, but I wasn't like I would this is a play, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of the dialogue, like it's it's fine. But for me, what was interesting was the filmmaking more so than the dialogue. And his perform it's a great performance. If he wins, I'm totally happy with him winning. <laughs> Get that. He ain't winning over Chadwick Boseman. Well, yeah, that's true. And 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 I will say, now I've seen all the nominees for Best Actor, the, the, the nominees that got nominated, by the way, um, and the person that I would choose, I would give it to Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Again, maybe Anthony Hopkins a close second, but my personal choice for Best Actor of the Year was not nominated, and that would be Mad Mickelson for Another Round, which was a movie that completely took me by surprise because I really wasn't sure what I was going to get. I, I did talk about it with uh, Bill when we, we had okay. our program together, but uh, on the last episode, which I cut out, I did say, did you see it? And you were like, no. And then I had to try to give you some enthusiasm <laughs> to see it. So now you have seen it. So, so I guess now I have wanna... seen it. Well, and the father was also one that I was sort of holding off on 
because I thought the father was just going to be dreary and realistic. Yeah. And so this actually gave you, and I, I gave you some intriguing things to hopefully yes. get you to interest. So are you happy you saw the father now? I'm very happy I saw The Father. It was not the film I was expecting it to be. And The Father's movie, I would actually not mind seeing a second time at some point. Don't get me wrong. Uh, on its own, I like The Father. But if this was a, a normal year where we had tons of great movies coming out this year, I don't think it would have been in my conversation as one of the best films of the year. No, his performance might have been. Yes, um, but the rest of the film, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily think this is best best picture material. But anyways, another round was nominated for Best Director and Best yes. uh, Foreign Film, but nothing else. Um, but I, having seen the film, I would have definitely put it up for Best Picture over uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. And it actually turns out to be my second favorite film of 2020. Okay. I haven't done any kind of ranking yet. Well, I mean, again, I'm not really ranking because there wasn't that many <laughs> right. movies. Yeah, but that's, it, that's, but, I'm, I'm kind of skipping my top 10 for 2020. But I mean, if I had to do a top five, it's in my top five. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I watched it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. He watched it, but he isn't telling me anything. About it. <laughs> I totally agree. Mads Mikkelsen is just astounding. His face communicates so much. Yeah. And he is capable of bringing all these different layers to something where it's like, it's simultaneously funny and tragic. Yeah. Uh, he can pull that off. He's not just inhabiting the character. He's also communicating a lot. And so I, he's just a joy to watch. And, and generally, I think that's true of him. Yeah, but yeah, he always gets to, he, he, not always, but I'm familiar with seeing him in these darker roles. So yes. getting to see him in somewhat of a, I don't know if the movie is lighthearted, but it was a funnier movie than I was expecting. It's definitely funnier. I mean, it has the premise of a comedy, I think, mm. uh, in the sense, <laughs> I mean, it, it it's such, it's a very complicated movie in terms of tone, I think. There are times where it's comedic. Yeah. And there's even like physical comedy, like the scene when he goes in to get his coffee from the faculty lounge uh, and then slams into a door frame. That was great. That, that was great. But but there's like some physical comedy there that then ends in like physical tragedy. Yes. And so the movie is balancing these sort of life affirming joyous moments mixed with these like uh, moments of complete doubt and desolation, emotional devastation. Uh, and so it's balancing all these different tones. And then at its heart, it has this premise, which is silly. <laughs> yes. Like the concept of the movie is, and I've often thought this about like some Lars von Trier movies, particularly as I was thinking like Breaking the Waves, where they have these completely ridiculous, over-the-top, melodramatic concepts, and then film it in the most realistic, uh, naturalistic way possible. And so you kind of buy what's essentially a silly concept for a movie. Well, I mean, I think in, even in this instance, the reason why this group of men even buy into the silly concept that gets suggested in a sense to them is because they are just so bored with what's mm -hmm. going on in their lives that they need that that is silly as that sounds it sounds better than the uh the ennui that they've been experiencing <laughs> better than the alternative yeah and so well why not test out a crazy theory 
So many times a movie ends and it just, it ends because they didn't know where else to go with it or it just doesn't end the right way. And for me, what happens at the end of another round lifts the movie up into a different energy. And what Mads Mikkelsen's character does at the end, it's just, it's just so awesome to me that I really sealed the deal for me with the movie. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a it's a totally brilliant ending and totally unexpected, but inevitable. Yes. And perfect somehow. Um it, yeah, when it when that when that happened, I was just I was I was just stunned. I was like, "Oh my god, this is who would think to do this at the end of this movie?" And it felt totally intuitive on the part of the filmmakers and just like the absolute right thing to do and then it ends on that freeze frame which is just perfect and sort of sums up the movie in a really interesting way yeah and you know there's other moments in the film that like when they're all around hanging out in their friend's uh house and they're listening to music yes and just to get and, and there's just an energy there and i don't know i just i like hanging out with this movie is what i guess i'm saying was there any drinking on set I don't know those details, no. Because I have to say, the drunk acting- Was very realistic. Is so good because, well, and part of what's going on is like how drunk they are. Yeah. And it's really specific. Like, are you two drinks drunk or are you five drinks drunk? Like, <laughs> yes. you know, what blood alcohol content level and like, it's really, sp and so- for Mickelson and these other guys, but for each of them to sort of just be like two drinks drunk is really hard to play versus like eight drinks drunk. And they manage to do this. So you, you believe they're different levels of being drunk. I think that's why the director's branch or the Academy is always interesting in their choices, but they know they see things in a movie. I think sometimes that other people don't know yeah. about what, what, what makes a film an interestingly directed film. And I think this movie ab above a lot of the others that came out this year is the one that's going to stick around as people start to see it. I have mixed feelings about it. About this movie. Yeah. It sounds like you like it more than the father, but you have mixed feelings. Well, no, I like it a lot, but I do have mixed feelings. They're related entirely to me questioning how much this movie will appeal to other people. Interesting. Because this is a middle-aged man movie. Well, I'm a middle-aged man. And we are both middle-aged men. And so I think it appeals to us in a different way than it might another audience that there's, you know, there's something well, kids might not like it. Kids might not like it, but we can. Uh, so I I'd considered watching it with my wife. And after I'd seen it, I was like, yeah, she probably wouldn't have liked it. Really? Now, my wife loved it. I think it's too male. You know, this is about a boys club. It's interesting, Bill, and I'm sure you didn't hear that episode, yeah. but Bill liked it because he has a lot of familiarity, he said, with teachers, and he says that teachers love to drink. <laughs> That's what he said. He says he's been to a lot of get-togethers <laughs> with the teachers, and they said they really like to tie it on. Well, yeah, it's just uh, do they drink at work, I guess. Like, well. nobody has <laughs> – in the movie, nobody has a problem with any. Like at one point, his wife is like, one of their wives is like, "I don't care how much you get drunk with your friends. Like that's really not an issue." 
but it's uh, and then you know they're like the school is like apparently some people have been drinking at work that scene when they're all in there and they're looking around <laughs> but then their friend comes in and their trashed. friend comes in totally trash and i think that, but what's also great is that they're like half of them are relieved because they know that he's going to take all of the uh, yes you know yes you know? It's, he's going to get blamed for everything uh <laughs> well and so that's the kind of thing where like that scene is funny and tragic at the same time yeah and the movie really deftly handles these tones managing these various tones that at one point they say like drinking all day every day can lead to alcoholism yes like that's one of the negative side effects of drinking all day (laughs) (laughs) well you know i'm glad you saw all of these films and again for me, another round, I just really liked it. Uh, I thought it gave me something a little bit more than most films. And it's a bit of, it was a weird year, 2020, because again, yeah. we didn't get the full slate. So I don't know how I would have judged all of these movies had I had a whole full slate of films. And also seeing all of these films, normally, as many of the films that my local theater would show, probably not like another round, but I bet you my my theater would have shown The Father, it would have shown yeah. Ch- Chicago 7, all of these films. I like to judge as an experience seeing in the theater, and I got to see none of these in the theater. Uh, and so hopefully next year it won't be quite that. Yeah, the last movie you saw in the theater was uh, Tenet. Tenet, right? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that. That was the only 2020 release that I saw in the theaters. Uh, the other movies that I saw was pre-pandemic. I saw um, 1917. I saw Jojo Rabbit and Knives Out all in the theater right before the pandemic. Okay. Yeah, for me, I can't even remember. Well, you think you saw 1917 in the theater. Yes, that's right. Yep. Yep. That that was probably the last, you know, I did not care to see Tenet in the theater. No, and you didn't care for Tenet when you saw it. So <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Neither did anybody else. It seems. And I like it less the more I think about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, it's a shame that I didn't get to see it in its big screen IMAX glory that I really would have liked to have seen it. Every time I see a discussion or, you know, some comment thread about uh, about Tenet, people are always complaining that they can't hear the dialogue. Yeah. But on my sound system, it sounded fine. I could understand everything. Um, well, they may have made adjustments or something, or maybe when you can have headphones on and just listen. Um, I know in the big theater I saw it in, some some things were a little muffled sounding, but uh, that was the least of its problems. Uh, <laughs> though I enjoyed I actually enjoyed it, and I loved Robert Pattinson in the film. Well, of course. He was great, you know? And, uh, yeah, and because of him, I'm actually looking forward to the Batman movie. Yeah. I mean, I saw the early trailer they gave. Didn't look so great. Uh, I am going to admit, because uh, I feel like we got to go for a record here of mentioning Zack Snyder on the program before we leave. <laughs> I am really looking forward to the Netflix experience coming at the end of May, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. I've seen the trailer. It looks awesome. Can't it wait. looks awesome. It looks totally fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Did, now, did you, have you watched any, you haven't seen any more movies on Criterion or anything yet? I've been doing some TV watching. Because of you. This is all your fault. <laughs> um, you started the, you, you, you went into Lovers on the Run. Yeah, well, it was interesting is that I was attracted after gun crazy to check out uh they live by night yes and that's directed was the first film directed by nicholas nicholas ray and it you know i read the little bio and it supposedly had some like you know interesting can it actually felt very much a studio film huh but you could really see his understanding of young 
young lovers kind of thing. And okay. Maybe youth in understanding youth in a different way. And something about the movie felt very familiar. And some of the names used, and I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite grasp, why do I know this story other than the fact there are similarities to Gun Crazy and other right. lovers on the run. And then I realized as I was doing some research that it's based on a book, Thieves Like Us. And I'm like, oh, well, hey, Robert Altman did a movie, Thieves Like Us, that was very <laughs> similar in a weird way, but it, it was like more period of like the 30s. And it is, it was an adaptation of the same- Of the same book. And when Robert Altman did it, he was adapting the book more realistically to the time period of the book and had no knowledge that it had already been done. You know, because we think of what? these movies- Yeah, well, because think about it now is- Right, I guess the movie would have been lost. It wouldn't be, you couldn't just go rent it. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of movies people didn't even realize. So- that's a fascinating double bill if you can ever watch it is to see how that material is handled completely yeah. differently yet and essentially the story is pretty much the same but i would say that the robert altman movie is like way better <laughs> oh interesting okay i've never seen it oh it's great oh my god these like us is awesome because of all the quirky sort of altmanness right stuff and he also doesn't treat it in the sort of the melodramatic way that the material say treated here but it's still right, cool it's right, a great right. noir um and i definitely if you could if you enjoyed gun crazy i think you should watch they live at night um or live by i night. definitely want to watch thieves it's it's weird it's not um talked about in sort of the classic altman top 10 list it's great uh some of those odd in in the 70s at least the first half i mean altman was really doing some great stuff and, and also for those on looking for Criterion stuff. I haven't really delved into this just because of most of the films in the series that I'd be interested in seeing, I've already seen, but they're doing a whole uh, series on gambling films. Oh, they are? Oh, okay. And one of those, which is, it's lately you've been able to see it like on Amazon uh, Prime and stuff, is California Split. Right. And I recommend this movie to anybody who's interested in Altman and stuff is this movie is so fantastic. Yeah, I've never seen it. So I really would recommend you watching California Split because the performances by George Siegel and Elliot Gould are really cool. Okay. Yeah, I would I would I want to see that. It's not strong uh plot <laughs> as many Altman films, you know. Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's what you're in for though. I mean, that's Yeah. It, you're in for that sort of interesting ride between, and it's very much a character piece. So I, I would recommend people check out California Split. I will check it out. You, so you were, you were watching some TV stuff. I've been watching some TV stuff. Anything anything of note, or are you just watching more of the uh, Winter Soldier? Okay, the one thing of note is I watched the first few episodes of Raised by Wolves. That sounds familiar. I feel like my wife watched it. What is that? I would not be surprised if she watched it because it's like uh, a sci-fi thing with children being raised by androids. This is the Ridley Scott thing? It's the Ridley yeah, Scott she thing. Saw it. She that's, saw it. That's the only reason I brought it up is because Ridley Scott, it's the Ridley Scott thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She watched the whole thing. I'm not going to watch the whole thing. Yeah, not my genre. Yeah, it it just runs out of ideas by like the fourth episode. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that these days. It would have made a fine movie. That's what's weird about it is like there's not enough there to stretch it into a TV series. So I don't know. What, yeah, it, w it would have been a fine movie. And I will say that those first two episodes, the direction is better. Hmm. You can actually see that they were directed by Ridley Scott. They are better. 
Okay. And that's kind of interesting, but no, I can't recommend the show. I uh, started WandaVision. Okay. Uh, about halfway through that. Hmm. Well, you, you when you get when you get to the end, you can talk. We'll talk about it. <laughs> and yep, Mar- still watching Marvel movies. Okay, that's yeah. Yeah, I saw. You know, I've been kind of watching some documentaries. Hulu's got a bunch. I was watching a documentary on Zappa. Hmm. That's interesting. That's cool. You know, I'm not a big Zappa guy. I wasn't, you know, really into his music, but I but I appreciate his kind of bizarre genius. And yeah, yeah, it's a very fascinating documentary. So I watched that, and then uh, there's a documentary that they have on this company, the the We We Work Company. Oh, it was one of these things. It was a forty-seven billion dollar unicorn. It was one of these crazy, goofy, uh, cult-like founders, and he basically, you know, created a company that was about really nothing. And when that got exposed, <laughs> company tanked. But he got like a billion dollar payday, you know, golden parachute to get out. And so, you know, that was kind of interesting. That sounds kind of fun. But anyways, that's it. That's you know, it's for us. It's a relatively short program. <laughs> Good. Know. Let's wrap it up. Let's. I'm. Uh, I guess we'll be doing a post Oscar episode next yeah we'll touch on it right if there's any big surprises i mean i think that one of the things that still continues to be a controversy for me is the fact that viola davis is is possibly a a, a contender to win best actress for ma rainey's black bottom for a 26 minute performance uh, which I would categorize as supporting. Uh, yeah. We talked about that a lot in the forgotten we lost did. chunk that we edited out uh, last week, and we don't need to really rehash it again because we've talked about it, believe it or not, when we did the Oscar nominations. The only thing that I, uh, the only real tension for me in the Oscars is whether or not Chicago 7 will win anything because I do not want it to win anything. There's a weird movement for the film to possibly win nothing but like suddenly win best picture and i don't know who these clowns are but it could be the same clowns that decided that uh, <laughs> that uh, the green book was the best picture right this is very similar to green book actually this movie yeah it does in a lot of ways and that it's the most milk toast piece of crap yeah. that uh, a certain segment of the academy i guess it's like they know it's fodder for them yeah and it would be in keeping because, and I mentioned this on the program that got edited out, is that uh, when if I pick Nomadland as the best film of the year, that almost guarantees that it that will, it's not going to win. It won't. It might win best director. It certainly will win best director because Chloe Zhao won best director for the right. EGA. But it's if it wins best picture as well, then that would be a very rare event <laughs> where where my choice for best picture also mirrors the Academy. As long as it's not Chicago 7, I'm happy. Yeah, but you know what? <laughs> Get ready to be disappointed. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> well, that'll be great because it'll be it certainly the lead <laughs> to our episode next week that we tape is if it would, because we'll probably tape right after the Academy Awards happen. Yeah. Yep, we will. It'll be Friday. And I will watch it because I've heard that it's interesting. I think this is something that's uh, kind of cool. Steve, Steven Soderbergh is directing the Oscars this year. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And he's got this task of having to produce a very interesting show where you can't yeah. have people. So it's in multiple locations. They are making this interesting decision of doing a 90-minute pre-show where they're going to have uh, the artist in different areas singing the Oscar-nominated songs. Wow. So you don't have to watch it during the show if you don't want to. That's fantastic. It's the greatest thing ever. It's like, that's genius. You like have everybody get to sing their songs. You make it a special show. People who are really into the Oscars can watch the whole pre-show, get to see the songs, but it won't slow down the ceremony. That's okay. And did you watch the Grammys? 
<clears throat> no. I don't watch any of these award shows except for the Oscars. I watch the Grammys. You do? Yeah, because my kids like it. They do? Yes. Well, they, they're into music, I guess. <laughs> they're into music. So, uh, if it wasn't for them, I would not watch it. Right. I understand. But they did a pretty good setup with different stages and having people there live. And uh, yeah, it, it actually, they did a pretty good job of it. And it was Trevor Noah hosting. So, I think it can be done, an awards, a COVID awards show. So, maybe this will be better than others in the past. So, I, you know. I'll, I'll watch it. Then finally, we can put this in the books. 2020 can be finally over. <laughs> Get the 2021 Move movies. on. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I just want cinemas to open up again. And I'm really hoping that happens soon. And that I find out that my beloved Somerville Theater opens up and will hopefully be able to do some film festivals and some 70 millimeter film festivals so that I can report on those things, which is always fun to do. Yes. All right, sir. Well, this is it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. You heard it from, from Teal. Thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, StuffWeSeen.com is always a reminder. Feedback at StuffWeSeen.com. Come on, people. You're, you're listening. I can see the numbers. People listen, but yet people aren't writing us to, to tell us Write things. Write us. We, we want to hear from you. Yeah, we want to hear your complaints. We want to hear your, your compliments. We want to hear your suggestions. Because uh, that really does help kind of figure out what we want to do next if we yeah, get suggestions. Yeah, it does. Um, so anyways, that's it. So, uh, you know, get get to it, people. Bye-bye. Bye.